This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. All of a sudden, we hear the most inhumane scream. It was blood-curdling. Then it was over. Silence. There was no crying. Nothing. There was no doubt what got him. The sharks got him. These words came from Deborah Scalin Kinney, one of the survivors from the sinking of the trash man. This true story will scare you more than Jaws, and is officially at the top of my worst nightmare list. You're listening to Twisted Travel and True Crime. Welcome aboard. As many of you know, I currently record this podcast while living aboard a 36-foot boat with my family. Most of the cases I've covered are true crime, but I love a crazy travel story, too. Today is one of those, and it takes place in the Atlantic Ocean. The Atlantic Ocean is the second largest ocean, beaten only by the Pacific. It covers just over 20% of the Earth's surface and is home to millions of plants and animals, including several apex predators. Deborah Scaling stood on the dock, looking out at the water, feeling the breeze blow through her hair and listening to the sounds of the wind as it rocks the boats in the marina. It was October of 1982. Deborah was a tall, strong, lean brunette. She was 23 years old, and she felt at home near the boats. She was born in Throckmorton, Texas in 1958. At age eight, she attended Grady Spruce Sailing Camp in Texas. While she was there, she found out she truly enjoyed sailing and that she was naturally good at it. Throughout her teenage years, she spent her days sailing and working on boats. She enjoyed it so much that she dropped out of college in order to pursue a sailing career full-time. Sailing was a fun and adventurous way to see the world. She would find jobs and crew on as many boats as she could. As she improved her sailing and gained experience, she racked up some serious achievements. She attended a race week in Antigua and participated in the Whitbread Around the World Race. In fact, she was the first woman to do so. Today, the Whitbread is called the Ocean Race. Crew members will sail day and night, up to 20 days at a time. While circumnavigating, the temperature range varies from negative 5 to 40 degrees Celsius, or 23 to 104 degrees Fahrenheit. As the crew tries to keep the boat as light as possible, often they'll only take one complete change of clothes. The route varies, but the race often takes as long as nine months to complete. Deborah, having been through some pretty serious sailing situations in the past, felt that a relatively short and easy boat delivery job was a fun way to make some money. She decided she was going to take a few vacation days from her everyday waitressing job so that she could go do what she loved. The boat was in Maine, but it needed to be delivered to Florida, where a new owner would be waiting. The recently hired captain of the boat was a man named John Lippeth. He had been looking for some crew and thought she might fit the bill. John had found her because she had resourcefully posted some flyers at a local marina, saying that she'd be available. The yacht was called the Trash Man, but it wasn't trashy by any means. It was a beautiful 58-foot Alden sailboat with a pine green hull and elegant teak trim. 
The boat's name was simply a tribute to the current owner's success in the garbage industry. It was a well-put-together boat and had no noticeable flaws or problems. It was well cared for, ship-shaped, some would say, and it was nearly ready to go. Deborah thought that John was a good sailor and captain, but he wasn't necessarily reliable. They had spent some time together prepping the boat for the sail to Florida, and on occasion she found John drunk, either on board the boat or at the nearby bar. Other sailors let her know that he had a reputation for being an alcoholic and a chain smoker. Even so, his experience spoke for itself. On the morning they were going to start sailing south, she showed up at the Southwest Harbor Dock to report for work. She found John passed out below deck. Regardless, they set sail, but along the way, they stopped to pick up John's girlfriend, Meg Mooney. John explained that she wanted to come along on the trip. This was a bit of a last-minute surprise for Deborah. Meg had no sailing experience. She didn't know her way around the boat at all. It seemed as if the captain just wanted another warm body on the boat, rather than a crew member. The trash man hopped from port to port from Maine towards Annapolis, Maryland. Captain John rarely raised the sails and relied primarily on the inboard motor, which constantly needed repair. The motor had stopped for some reason or another three times along the way. They tried to pick up additional crew as they traveled south, but so far no one had been interested. By the time they reached Annapolis, Deb was insistent that they find more crew. She knew that they would need more qualified help for the much more difficult sail along the coast of the Carolinas. They would be more exposed to high winds and waves on that stretch of the trip. In Annapolis, she started making phone calls to friends and contacts to see if anyone would be willing to help. A young man named Brad Cavanaugh was walking the docks of the Annapolis Harbor alongside an Englishman named Mark Adams. Both of them were hunting for work. It was a beautiful day. The sun sparkled down on the water and warmed everything it touched. They were cooled by the beautiful sea breeze drafting in across the harbor. Mark Adams had previously secured them a job on a boat, but it had fallen through at the last minute, and all they had to show for their willingness and effort was $50 in each of their pockets. As they walked along the docks, Brad spotted an attractive woman standing by a bank of payphones. He looked at her, and she stared back at him. Brad was a sandy-haired and tall man. He was six foot three, twenty-one years old. As he looked at her, he realized that he knew her and that she was Debbie Scaling. Ironically, Deb couldn't believe her eyes because at that very moment, she had just called Brad Kavanaugh's house, hoping to convince his sister Sarah to join the crew of the trash man. Deb and Sarah had sailed together in the past and enjoyed each other's company. Sarah and Brad Kavanaugh grew up in a boating family. Brad had survived his first hurricane at sea in utero. His father, a trained photographer, taught him and his siblings how to sail at a very young age. From the outside, Brad's life looked amazing. He went to elite schools. They had a sailboat and a new car in the driveway every five years. They lived in a beautiful big house. Inside the home, like many homes, things were different. Brad's father was an alcoholic who emotionally abused, assaulted, and belittled his wife and children. The way a parent talks to their child becomes the child's inner voice, and because of this, Brad never felt like he was quite good enough. Yet he still seeked approval from his father, 
and decide to take up sailing because that was something his father enjoyed. Deb was thrilled to see Brad, and she quickly asked the two men to come meet Captain John. When John met Mark, he saw a kindred spirit. John and Mark were both loud, aggressive, gregarious, and heavy drinkers. They made friends quickly, and Captain John was happy to offer Mark and Brad a job as extra deckhands. They planned to leave just a couple days later when the weather looked good to travel. Meg enjoyed drinking and joking with the men, but when they discussed sailing plans, she would often retreat below to her cabin. When discussing qualifications, Mark had told Deborah and John that he would soon be hired as a captain for a ship named the Ocean Greyhound. It was a prestigious boat that raced in the Whitbread races. As I mentioned earlier, Deb had competed in these races, so knowing his credentials, she assumed he must be a good sailor. Weirdly, with the experiences that he claimed to have, some of his actions and choices seemed questionable to Deborah, so she called a friend of hers who helped crew the Ocean Greyhound. He told her that he had never heard of Mark Adams, let alone spoken to a man named Mark Adams. He told her the ship wasn't even scheduled to be sailed anytime soon. This raised some serious red flags with Deborah. She started having second thoughts about doing this trip. It seemed as if the captain was unreliable. Meg had no experience sailing at all, and Mark was just an outright liar. In Deborah's mind, only Brad could be trusted. While they were still docked, Deborah took Captain John to the side and told him about her doubts and worries. She believed the crew was not capable of making the trip, and that doing so would put their lives at risk. John got upset because it seemed to him that Deborah was questioning his abilities as a captain. She was doubting his professionalism. He began arguing with her, and when he did, she told him that she thought she should quit. He told her that if she quit, he would essentially blacklist her and would make sure she never got a sailing job again. She regrettably stayed aboard the trash man, nervous and apprehensive about how the trip was going to go. The next morning they set sail on a trip that should have taken just a few days. Early the next morning, as they pushed off the docks, she noticed, unsurprisingly, that Mark and John were hungover and slow-moving. They had been drinking heavily the night before. Meg had barely shown her face, staying below all night and only popping up for a drink once in a while. Deborah decided to confront Mark about his lies, and predictably an argument broke out. After this, they decided to avoid each other by choosing opposite shifts. When it came time to take a turn at the steering wheel and to trim the sails, Deb and Brad ended up doing most of the work on the boat. Not only were they the more experienced crew at ages 21 and 23, but they were also the most sober. Their first night aboard was fairly uneventful. The next day, the wind began to pick up. As the hours progressed, the water conditions became worse and worse. The weather report showed no change in condition, so they decided the weather likely wouldn't get any worse. Tragically, this proved to be wrong. Deborah was awoken from her sleep by John, who told her there was a storm outside and he needed her help. It was now blowing 40 knots consistently and gusting even higher. The boat was driving up and dropping down into the waves. Water crashed over the deck and into the cockpit. It was becoming uncomfortable and scary for the crew. What felt like solid walls of water were crashing into the boat. Mark was outside steering and seemed almost maniacal. He was laughing and howling at the storm. 
He jeered at her, yelling, I hope this isn't too much for you, Mrs. Whitbread. I can only assume he was trying to make himself feel better by throwing shade on her credentials and experience. Deborah maturely brushed off his badgering and took over the helm. The winds continued to build, gusting up to 80 miles an hour. They battled the weather all night. It took everything within her to keep the boat pointed in the right direction and to counter the water currents. Things were breaking. The sails were overworked. By the time her shift was over, she was completely exhausted. She gladly gave the helm over to Brad and took a moment to inspect the boat now that dawn was breaking. The mainsail had ripped during the night and had to be taken down. The dodger, which was supposed to protect them from the elements, had been shredded. The anemometer, which I often call the windometer, just because it makes sense, was broken. They no longer knew how fast the wind was blowing. The compass had been destroyed, too, so they had no idea which direction they were going. The instruments were useless. Captain John called the Coast Guard. He needed directions from them so they could point the boat toward shore. The Coast Guard tried to assist them, but it was quickly determined that the boat was unable to sail. Finally, Captain John asked the Coast Guard to come out and rescue them. The Coast Guard said, yes, we can do that, but it's going to take us about five hours to get to you. Deborah was terrified. She personally had never had to call the Coast Guard before, and to have Captain John admit defeat scared her. Often when the Coast Guard comes in a situation like this, the people are taken off the ship, leaving it to bob around at sea. Perhaps it could be salvaged later if the storm didn't sink it. She went below to tell the others what was happening. Mark's response was, We're fine. We don't need help, effing amateurs. This came as no surprise to Deb. After eleven hours of steering the boat and keeping watch overnight, she was exhausted. She didn't want to deal with Mark any longer, and so she went to lay down and take a nap in the crew quarters. She found Meg laying there, passed out. She thought to herself, If she could just get four hours of sleep, she would be awoken when the Coast Guard was arriving to help them. A tropical storm had formed off Cape Fear in the Carolinas. The massive storm seemed to come out of nowhere. Brad was soaked to the skin and too tired to stand, so he braced himself below decks. He pressed his feet and back between the walls of a small hallway to keep from being knocked around by the thirty-foot-tall waves. They tossed the boat mercilessly back and forth in the Atlantic. As the storm continued, Brad grew more and more angry. He was only 21 years old, and less experienced than most of the others. He felt as if no one had a plan. All they were doing was waiting for the Coast Guard to arrive. He knew that things were serious. The motor had died again, and they had already cut off the wind-damaged mainsail. That meant that they were at the mercy of nature. All they could do was ride out the storm and hope to survive long enough for the Coast Guard to rescue them. He kept reassuring himself that it was just a matter of time. As he jammed in the little hallway, the storm seemed to settle into predictable pattern. The boat would rise up on a wave, lifting into the wind. The force of the howling wind would tilt the boat slightly to one side, and then it would coast down the back side of the same wave. At the bottom of the wave, the boat would ride itself for a moment of peace and quiet because it was sheltered from the wind. The boat would be between the valleys formed between the thirty-foot waves, but then it would rise up again and it repeated this motion over and over. Brad finally began to relax. 
but just as he did so, the boat tilted abruptly and much harder than normal and never righted itself. He could see the dark waters of the Atlantic lurching toward the porthole windows. He knew they were going to hit the water hard, and so he braced himself for impact. A fraction of a second later, water burst through the windows and began rushing into the boat. He jumped up from the floor and raced to get Deborah from her bunk. He shouted for everyone to get off the boat. It was going to sink. Mayday! 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 A call was put out to the Coast Guard to come and help them, but there hadn't been enough time to give them a location. They all huddled together at the bottom of the stairs leading to the cockpit. John tried to grab and activate the EPIRB, which is a location beacon, and would have told the Coast Guard where they were, but the rushing water tore it out of his hands and carried away before he could activate it. They had to get out of the interior of the boat, so they began making their way outside and onto the deck. They knew they had to move quickly to abandon the boat, or they might get sucked down with it. Brad saw the eleven-and-a-half-foot red-and-black Zodiac dinghy. Mark had secured it to a cleat near the cockpit. An outboard motor was next to it, mounted to the railing, but the trash man was sinking too fast to be able to mount it to the dinghy. As Brad tried to release the lines, securing the dinghy, one broke and shot like a whip across his chest, ripping his shirt and the skin on his chest. He lost his grip on the dinghy, and it flipped off the boat, but luckily it didn't get very far. Mark, who was simultaneously working on loosening the emergency life raft, wasn't as lucky. A strong gust of wind ripped it out of his hands, and the sinking boat started to take the life raft, along with its emergency food water and rations, and the first aid kit, down with it. Brad dove off the trash man and swam as hard as he could towards the dinghy. He kicked his boots off, which had belonged to his father, and for a moment, all he could do was think about how mad his dad would be for losing these boots. That's a pretty sad thought to have during what could be the last moments of a man's life. When, just a few minutes earlier, Brad had woken Deb, she had seen the water cascading into the cabin. She saw Mark's eyes wide open. Fear was plain as day on his face. His eyes were bloodshot. She saw Meg huddled in the cabin. She appeared to be screaming, but no sound was coming from her mouth. She saw John shouting for Mayday on the radio. She raced up and onto the deck. All she could see was miles of waves in all directions, and the ice-cold wind cut through her. The reality was that the trash man was sinking, and there was absolutely nothing they could do about it. She turned and saw Brad up on the top deck, trying to loosen the dinghy. She turned again and saw that Mark was trying to free the plastic case that encapsulated the emergency life raft. A huge wall of water came crashing down on them. It ripped the life raft out of Mark's hand, and it pulled the dinghy into the water alongside the trash man. Miraculously, Brad had been able to grab onto the dinghy line. The wave pulled Deborah into the water, but not before smashing her into the mast's rigging. She was able to untangle herself and kick up to the surface where she found Meg. Meg had blood surrounding her in the water, and she was having trouble swimming. As Deb glanced over to where the boat should be, all she could see was the mast sinking below the water and one side of the hull protruding from the sea. She grabbed Meg and pulled her over towards the dinghy, which was upside down. They both grabbed onto it, hanging on for their lives. Mark and John had made their way to the dinghy, too. They glanced over their shoulders and saw that the boat was on its side. Another wave came along, and for a moment it seemed to set the boat right side up once more. It was trying to right itself, 
but it had taken on too much water, and with every wave it sank just a little further into the ocean. Eventually it vanished for good. John was shouting, It's all over! It's all over! Mark was screaming, We're all going to effing die! The dinghy rose and fell along with the waves. They used all their energy to hang onto the dinghy in order to survive and not to be washed away. They fought to breathe as the waves splashed over their heads repeatedly. Their hands became shredded, rubbing on the rope while gripping it tightly for hours at a time. Terrified, the crew members spent the next several hours in the water being thrashed about by the waves. During calmer moments, they ducked underneath the dinghy for protection from the strong winds. Their heads would pop up in a little pocket of air under the raft, but there wasn't much space to move. Brad felt that he desperately needed space because he was so angry at John and Mark. Over the past two days, Brad felt that Mark had often been too drunk to do his job, and John never did anything about it, which made him and Deborah have to pick up the slack. He was mad because he felt like he had spent his childhood on a boat with a drunken father, and now he partnered with an alcoholic sailor and a captain who was willing to look the other way. He realized there was nothing he could do about it now. All he could do was try to stay alive under the inflated dinghy. As nighttime approached, the temperatures got colder. The five crew members didn't want to get out of the water because the ice-cold wind cut through their bodies and it felt warmer in the ocean. But they still felt the cold was going to kill them if they didn't warm up. Brad devised a plan for the crew to be able to shelter underneath the dinghy but still remain out of the water. He grabbed a piece of wire that he found on the raft. He ran it back and forth from side to side, creating a kind of webbing that they could crawl up onto. It allowed them to stay under the floor of the dinghy, which was their roof, and yet raised them just a little bit out of the water. They would crawl into this tiny space until they felt like they were running out of air. Then they would slide into the water and lift the dinghy just enough to let some fresh air into the small space. This kept them warm just enough that none of them became hypothermic. Brad was sleep-deprived and dehydrated, and his mind wandered back to his youth. He reminisced about the summer afternoons playing under his family's dock. He played hide-and-seek with his friends, trying to waste the day away, and trying to stay away from his father's alcohol-fueled rages. He said he spent a lot of his time hiding from his father, and if there was a silver lining to the abuse and fear he grew up with, it was that he learned how to survive under pressure. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. The storm had died down a bit, but a cool breeze was sucking all the heat from their warmer, wet bodies. At some point, Meg told the others she saw a bright light in the distance. She thought that it could be help coming to save them, but sadly, Deborah knew better. She knew it was a sailboat in the far distance, and it was far too dark for the boat to see them. It was going on 18 hours of being wet and cold. The next morning, John unexpectedly swam out from under the dinghy to get some fresh air. He was having a panic attack, and he refused to go back under the dinghy into the relative warmth. Brad tried to convince the crew to stay under the boat in order to keep warm. 
Most of them disagreed, and they righted the dinghy. Four people climbed on board, but Deb stayed in the water. She was as cold as the others, but she knew the water temperature was 76 degrees, and the air temperature was in the 40s. She needed to preserve her energy, and felt that the water was a better place to do it. When Meg had climbed out into the dinghy, Deb was able to see the extent of her injuries. Waves had thrown Meg into the ship's rigging as well. The metal wire had lacerated her leg, exposing tissue. The cut went all the way to the bone behind her knee. The salt water had washed away a lot of the blood, but there was still a constant stream of it dripping from the gaping wound. It wasn't long before Mark felt the freezing cold and the wind and hopped back into the water. Mark and Deborah hung there for a few more hours. Suddenly Mark said, Don't kick me. Deb felt a little confused and said, What are you talking about? Mark's response was, You did it again. Cut it out. Deb was confused and also trying to tamper Mark's anger. She lowered her head into the water and opened her eyes to the stinging salt. She was trying to figure out what was hitting Mark's leg. What she sees causes a rush of adrenaline to race through her body. She came eye to deadly eye with a tiger shark. Tiger sharks are big and vicious. They can reach over 16 feet long and have a bite width of 26 inches, though most are smaller. They are one of three sharks that are known to attack humans unprovoked, and there were several of them circling the dinghy. The tiger sharks had likely been drawn to the area from the blood from Meg's bleeding leg and the noises from the raft. Deb screamed in fear and jumped into the boat and then quickly felt Mark land on top of her. The largest shark in the group began banging against the boat, then swam up underneath it and picked it up out of the water with its body before letting it drop back down. The crew grabbed onto the sides of the dinghy while Brad and Deborah tried to make a makeshift anchor out of a little piece of plywood that was attached to the raft. They used the metal wire, hoping it would help steady the boat. No sooner had they dropped the wood into the water, a shark bit it and began dragging the dinghy at full speed. It was like a smaller version of the scene in the movie Jaws, where Jaws pulls the entire fishing boat backwards through the water. When the shark finally spit out the makeshift anchor, Brad pulled it in and Mark, enraged, grabbed a hold of it and tried to smash the shark's head with it. Brad feared he might poke a hole in the dinghy, so he tried to calm Mark down. He warned Mark that the shark's reaction to being hit might make it even more angry. It might attack the dinghy and he should just leave it alone. Brad felt that if they could all keep calm and keep the boat upright, they still might make it out alive. The Coast Guard knew their general vicinity. They had even heard a plane roaring overhead just before the boat sank. They assumed it was sent to locate any survivors, and a rescue ship would be by to bring them back to shore. Unknown to them, at the time, was that a boat had been on the way to rescue them, but for some reason, a miscommunication of some kind called the search off. No one was coming for them, after all. They all sat in the boat, freezing, when a thought came to Deborah's mind. They'd been passing huge patches of seaweed, so she told all the crew members that they should grab it, pull it in, and use it as a blanket. Of course, Mark's comment was, What, so we get our arms bitten off while we're trying to retrieve it? Brad reassured her, though, and said he would watch for sharks as they pulled the seaweed into the dinghy. So with blistered lips and cracked hands, they pulled the seaweed on board and wrapped it around them. They did their best to stay warm. 
Mark and John were severely dehydrated. Mark from all the scotch he'd been drinking, and John from the cigarettes he chain-smoked before the boat went down. Both men were likely going through some type of withdrawal as well. Meanwhile, Meg's cut was infected and filling with pus. She was getting sicker and weaker, and the blood and pus was beginning to fill the interior of the boat. As they all lay together in the small pool of water on the bottom of the dinghy, they started to develop sores on their bodies. This was likely due to staph infections. Staph infections, specifically MRSA, can be caught from ocean water. MRSA is an antibiotic-resistant bacteria that can cause severe infections. The symptoms are painful red bumps that turn into abscesses. The warmer the water gets, the quicker the Staphylococcus bacteria can grow. The water in the bottom of the dinghy was warm from their bodies. Their skin became so tender that even brushing up against another person sent a spark of pain through their skin. The skin is the biggest organ after all, and it was very strained. It was wet, sunburnt, windburnt, and had no internal hydration or support. After three days without food or water, and using their energy to hold on to the dinghy during the storm, they were all completely exhausted. They realized that maybe the Coast Guard wasn't coming. They began to believe that their only hope of survival was to wash up somewhere, but what they didn't know was that they were being pulled even further out to sea. Deb began praying. She hoped the next morning would bring sun and new hope of being rescued. She promised God that if she made it out alive, she would work hard to be a better person. Maybe tomorrow would be the day that they would be rescued. Brad dreamt of home. He dreamt he was on a sailing boat, talking to men on a fishing boat riding next to them as they sailed from Newburyport to Buzzards Bay. It was a route his family often took when moving their boat in the summer. The next morning, after that dream, he woke up to see John and Mark leaning over the sides of the dinghy. He nudged Debbie, waking her. He said, what do you think they're doing? She lifted her head and replied, they're drinking the seawater. They were so dehydrated that an overwhelming compulsion to drink the water broke their will. They drank from the salt water, knowing that it would cause severe problems. They knew they shouldn't do it, but they couldn't help themselves. Their bodies were so dry. Their lips were bleeding. Their throats were dry and parched. Their eyes stung because there wasn't enough liquid to wet their eyeballs. Their bodies itched. Unbelievable headaches pounded and throbbed. A thirsty agony raged through their bodies. Mark and John couldn't fight the desire for liquid any longer. There was nothing that Deborah or Brad could do to save them at this point. Their kidneys would soon start to shut down, and they'd go mad before long. Soon enough, the delusions began. John started searching around the boat for cigarettes that didn't exist. He accused the others of stealing them or hiding them, asking where they were. Hours went by with the three sane passengers trying to keep the mad crew from doing anything dangerous. John then began trying to convince Mark that they were going to take a plane to Maine, where his mother worked at a hospital. He said, we're going to Portland. I'm going to get the car. I want you guys to pick up the boat, and I'll come back out and get you. Then he slid over the edge of the Zodiac dinghy and into the water. Deborah, panicked, said, Brad, you've got to get John. But Brad was so weak, he could barely muster the energy to coax John back into the boat. He begged him, saying, If you go away and die, then I might die too, and I don't want to die. Meg began begging John to get back into the raft. 
She leaned over the side, trying to pull him up, but it was too late. The wind pulled the dinghy away from John, and soon his bobbing head was out of sight. Suddenly, across the empty expanse of the ocean, they could hear John scream as the sharks attacked him. The sound was inhumane. Meg and Deborah stared into the abyss, crying, but without tears, because there wasn't enough moisture in their bodies left to produce them. They hung on to each other for comfort. Meg's boyfriend, the captain of the ship, was gone. Everyone knew it was a matter of time before Meg would succumb to her wounds, and it wasn't long before Mark was walking the maze of madness as well. He kept hitting on Meg and proposing that sex would cheer her up. She rebuked him, and he decided he'd had enough. He said to her, Great, if we're not going to have sex, I'm going back to 7-Eleven to get some beers and cigarettes. Brad responded, You're not going anywhere. We're out in the middle of the ocean. Mark replied, I know, I know. I'm just going to hang over the side and stretch out a bit. I'll get back in the boat. Mark hung on the side of the raft and lowered himself into the water. Brian looked away for a moment to say something to Deborah, but when he turned back, Mark was gone. There was a moment of confusion, and then the boat began to spin. The water around them churned wildly, and they knew the sharks had gotten Mark. Blood rose up around them, turning the water red. The three remaining crew members spent the rest of the evening being knocked around as the sharks bumped and prodded the dinghy. The sharks had a taste of man, and they wanted more. The three remaining crew cowered on the bottom of the dinghy, hoping and praying it wouldn't get knocked over. Deborah imagined how their deaths would come. There would be a bump, and then the hissing sound of air escaping from one of the tubes of the dinghy. It would start to lean to one side, and then eventually they would slide in and become the next meal for the hungry sharks. Megan was becoming delirious from the pain and infection. She was shivering violently in the cold. Suddenly, in the darkness of night, with a renewed energy, she launched herself at Brian, scratching at him and screaming. It took all of his energy to keep her off him. After some time, Megan calmed down and lay in Deborah's arms. She said, It's time to go. We're here. I'm going home. Then she began speaking in tongues. All three of them lay in the dinghy, looking up at the stars. The sea had calmed during the day and the sun had given them their first feelings of warmth in over two days. But now that it was night, the cold was back, and the starlight gave no heat. Megan raised her hands and elegantly began tracing lines in the air. Meg began moaning in pain and agony until she fell silent. Her last intelligible words were, I'm taking three souls and leaving you to tell. When she died... Brad and Deborah said the Lord's Prayer, undressed her, and slid her into the water. They kept her jewelry to give to her parents if they were lucky enough to ever meet them. They wanted to tell Megan's parents how brave she had been all the way until the end. They kept her clothes to add an extra layer of protection against the elements. When they pushed her body into the water, she floated like a jellyfish with her arms and legs straight down. They closed their eyes and plugged their ears because neither of them wanted to see the sharks come for her, too. After Megan died, Deb was troubled by the fact that they were laying in infected water, 
and so she convinced Brad that they should flip the boat over and clean it out. Weak and unsteady, Brad didn't have enough strength to do it himself. He gave the boat a tug, lost his balance, and toppled backwards into the water. He tried to get back in the boat, but he couldn't. Panic seized him. Every person who entered the water from that dinghy had been eaten by sharks, and he knew he needed to get back in it fast, and he needed Debbie's help. He begged her to help him. She sat there sobbing inconsolably on the other side of the raft. With his last bit of strength, he willed himself up over the lip of the dinghy on his own. He sat in the boat exhausted and seething with anger. The entire time they were on the boat with a drunken crewmate during the storm, and throughout the entire time in the dinghy, they had held a pact to look out for each other, to protect each other from the sharks. They stayed sane during the madness of the other crew members. How could she have just left him there in the water? How could she have let him down? They were supposed to be a team, and now it's their fifth day without food or water. He couldn't even look at her. There were two of them in the dinghy, but he felt all alone. He sat in silence until finally he had something important to say. He said, Deb, look. There was a vessel approaching them. He had spotted a ship in the distance. They had seen ships in the distance before, but none had been close enough for them to be seen. As the ship moved towards them, they could see a man on the deck waving. They felt a huge wave of relief. Soon after, a crew member threw lines down to them. The line landed short of the dinghy, splashing into the water, but it was too far away. Brad and Deb were too tired and scared to swim. The men pulled the rescue buoys back up and tried again. Brad, for his part, couldn't move. He told Debbie, I'm not going anywhere. I don't have the energy. The ship made another turn, pulling a little closer and then threw the lines again. Debbie jumped into the water and started swimming. Seeing Deb in the water was all the motivation Brad needed. He threw himself overboard and grabbed a line, letting the crew pull his body in. They hoisted him up onto the deck beside Debbie. Their courage here is impressive. It's amazing that they had the strength to jump into the water after the sharks had eaten three of their friends. The crew on the boat spoke Russian. Amidst the height of the Cold War, the U.S. Coast Guard never came to save them, but ice traders on a Soviet vessel did. These wonderful men and women gave Brad and Deb dry clothes and medical treatment, along with warm tea and coffee filled with sugar, water, and vodka. That night, the Coast Guard finally arrived and took the two survivors to a hospital. That night, out on the ocean, the temperature dropped down into the 30s. Brad and Deb wouldn't have survived another night at sea. As Brad lay recuperating in the hospital, his mother flew down to be by his side. Seeing her and having her there to care for him made him feel like the happiest man alive. His father, however, never came. He was busy on a sailing trip of his own. Brad returned to Massachusetts, where he made a full recovery, and began looking for a job in hopes of earning enough cash to begin traveling and competing in sailing races. He processed what he had endured and felt he needed to talk to the only other person who had made it off that Zodiac alive. He had something he needed to tell Deb. A few months later, he boarded a flight to Fort Lauderdale. He didn't have a place to stay once he got there, 
so he slept in an empty boat that was hauled out and being stored in a field. Walking around the next day, he caught a glimpse of the latest issue of Sail magazine, and it stopped him dead in his tracks. On the cover was a picture of him and Mark together, just two racing buddies, two friends, before they joined the tragic sail on the trash man. Brad paced back and forth on the Fort Lauderdale docks, searching for Debbie, and finally found her looking as beautiful as ever. His body was pumping with adrenaline when he saw her. He wanted to tell her that he was in love with her. They shared something that no one else could understand, and he felt a bond deeper than anything he'd ever known before. As he moved towards her to tell her just that, she recoiled. Just the sight of him reminded her of the horrors that she suffered when in the dinghy. She said, I'm sorry, but I can't be around you. I don't want you to have anything to do with me. Please leave me alone. He felt rejected and hurt. Then he did what he always did. He walked the docks, looking for work. The years came and went like the tides. Deborah Scaling Kinney became a motivational speaker and wrote books about what happened to her. She spoke publicly about her fight to survive. She appeared on Larry King Live and promoted her memoir. It's called Albatross, if you'd like to read it. She and Brad both continued to sail and ran into each other now and then. They desperately tried to hide their pain when they did bump into each other. Eventually, Deb married, settled down, and raised a family. In 2009, her son, who had also become an avid sailor, drowned in an accident at age 23, the same age Deborah was when she faced death on the open ocean. It was nearly three years later to the day that Deborah died in Mexico at age 54. When Brad heard the news, he was very disappointed with life. He had never told her that he loved her. There was no information in her obituary about the cause of her death, but he recalled that there were whispers among family members of a suicide. Brad believed no one could have saved her because she was so tortured by those days in the Atlantic Ocean. Several years later, Debbie's daughter gave Brad a frame, and inside it was neatly coiled metal wire. It was the wire that Brad had used to suspend their shivering bodies underneath the dinghy. It had been what had kept them both alive long enough to be rescued. She had retrieved it from the dinghy when it was found still floating in the ocean days after they'd been saved. She had framed it and hung it on her wall, keeping it close to her all those years. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to see pictures of the crew, they're available on social media. Twisted Travel and True Crime is on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. There are links in the show description. In the show description, you'll find links to my resources, and if you'd like to donate to the podcast, there are links there to do so. You can also send an email to twistedtravelandtruecrime at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. If you have a case recommendation or a Twisted Travel story you think would be great to cover, I would love to hear about it. Until next time, stay out of the water. Just kidding. Get in the water. I've heard that uh, more people die from coconuts falling on their heads than from shark attacks. I'm not sure about the validity of those statistics, but the ocean's too nice to miss. Until next time, here's wishing you all fair winds and following seas.